red-blooded American boy would do, and that is find the cliff notes first and then try and find a shorter version of the cliff notes. But uh, actually I found it quite interesting as the uh, teacher took us through the rather difficult-to-understand vocabulary and language of it all. And my title of the message this morning is a takeoff on uh, Shakespeare's um, uh, Act 4, Scene 1 in The Merchant of Venice in the little soliloquy that's there. It says, the quality of mercy is not strained, referring to uh, it's an, it was an appeal for Shylock to extend mercy to the merchant of Venice instead of requiring the pound of flesh. See, you've, you've heard these things used in culture and have probably little idea where they came from or what they even mean. You know, you've heard of somebody, yeah, well, you'll get your pound of flesh. It's from the merchant of Venice. And in uh, default of paying his bills, the collector, as I understand it, had the right to take a pound of flesh, which of course is approximate weight of a human heart. So you get the drift. But the whole point of the uh, the quote there, the quality of mercy is not strained, is that it means that mercy should not be constrained and it should not be forced. And for our uh, lead in this morning, we're going to talk about the quality of belief and how it really should not be and is not constrained, nor should it be forced. I want to begin by talking about, we're only going over uh, five verses this morning. We're talking about the mystery of prayer. And, you know, prayer is one of those subjects that if there were a cumulative tally of all the books that have been written about prayer, they just might outstrip basically everything, including books about salvation. I don't know, I could be wrong on that, but just, just my anecdotal observation over the many years. To me, candidly, you know, the man of the cloth, the right reverend, the pastor, seminary trained, and all that. Mystery is confounding to me. Prayer is confounding to me. It's a mystery because I have all this theology swirling in my head and I know about God's you know, sovereignty and his omniscience, that he knows everything and you don't inform God of everything. Well, if you don't inform God of anything, then why do we have to bring our prayer request to him? Because he already knows what we have and we're told in Matthew 6 that you know, yeah, God knows what you need already before you even ask of it. And So you play those kinds of games there and God, I believe that you are sovereign and you're going to do what you want to do when you want to do it the way you want to do it. So why do we got a prayer to try and, you know, go Honestly, I'm just being candid with you. But I do pray because I'm commanded to pray. And for all the mystery surrounding prayer, the one thing that I do know, and this is only from personal experience, and as I say, experience is not authoritative, but it's not useless. And I pray, and I find that when I pray, depending on my attitude, (laughs) we'll get to that later maybe, When I pray, it's almost like a dumping of cares, concerns, and burdens if it's that nature of prayer that I'm offering up. And that's good enough for me. Well, where we've left off in Mark chapter 11, it's been a few weeks, is that Jesus and the boys were heading for Jerusalem where Jesus comes upon the temple, and of course the money changers are in the temple, and Jesus goes through and he cleans out physically and bodily and everything else and upturns things and throws people out of the temple. But while they're on their way to the temple, they come upon a fig tree, and they were hungry. And Jesus makes mention of the fact that the fig tree that they were 
going to grab some figs off of and replenish their uh, energy was barren. And so Jesus says, well, since the fig tree is barren, it shall no longer ever produce any fruit. Well, that could simply mean that the tree was barren through natural the natural course of the lifespan of a fig tree, which I don't know anything about that. Or it could mean that the fig tree was just kind of dead and beyond producing because of natural reasons, who know, fungus or pestilence or anything else. But Peter is surprised, we find out, when they see the fig tree was not simply barren, but it was withered. And so Peter intuited by that, that the withering of the fig tree was a direct result of Jesus' words about the tree and the tree's unfruitfulness. By Mark's account, though, and at this particular time in the way he presents it, we don't know that about the fig tree. We don't know that the fig tree withered, because that's not what we were told when they were on their way into town, but not until they're on their way out of town do they go by the fig tree again and realize that it's withered. Let's pick up in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Now, Matthew who also recorded this incident about the fig tree, he puts it, the story that is, or the accounting of it, he puts it in a different location. And I don't mean location geographically, but I mean in location in a timeline between them going into the, to Jerusalem and coming out of Jerusalem, which is the way Mark has it, occurring over several days perhaps. But the way Matthew records it, is that Jesus came upon the fig tree with the twelve. He saw that it was barren. He withered it on the spot. Peter made mention of it. And then they go into Jerusalem. Now, don't biblical scholars, liberal biblical scholars, pseudo-Christians and critics have a heyday with these kinds of passages. They go, see, we tell you all along that the Bible is holy and it's sacred and everything else, but it's just a humanly authored book. There are contradictions galore and inconsistencies, and there is a prime example with Matthew having it happen like this, and Mark records that it happens like this. Now, which is it? And they wring their hands and they take people down a path that isn't good for people of faith to go down and have their faith questioned and everything else. Well, we're going to see that the issue was the meaning of all that Jesus did. It was not the details or the specifics that are even relevant. We'll get to that later on if I don't forget. So getting back to Mark's account. Peter's statement about the tree withering is left kind of hanging there. And Jesus answers him saying in verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask... Believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Hmm. Already, if you've prayed even a handful of times in your life, you're probably already going, uh, hmm. Yeah, 
that doesn't seem to carry through in my life experience of it. And I'm certainly there with you. Well, Jesus' explanation to Peter and to us in the Scriptures is a bit confusing, at least it is to me. For one thing, Jesus' answer doesn't really even fit Peter's statement, not directly. Because interestingly enough, Peter never asked the question. He made an observation. Huh, hey, the tree is withered and concluded by that that Jesus obviously had cursed it. Well, we have to go on all that we have recorded for us to try and make sense of all that is going on here. And remember, as I'm fond of saying, that we don't have everything, obviously, in every situation of everything that took place or everything that was said at any point in the Scriptures. If they did, as is noted, I think in the book of Revelation, maybe I could be wrong on that, that if everything were recorded, the world could not hold enough books you know, that it would take to do that. So what we have here is what the Lord deemed it necessary for us to have and to know and to understand. So how do we wade through all of this and this idea about praying? And if we just have enough faith or we believe hard enough that everything's going to be granted to us because it seems to just butt up against reality, what is the number one axiom of rightly dividing the word of truth? It is that Scripture interprets Scripture. The Word of God interprets the Word of God. First, you have to begin in the immediate context, which for us is Mark 11. And then you move to the broader context, which may be elsewhere in Mark or in the New Testament. And then finally, you move to the broadest context, which is the context of the whole revelation of God, Genesis to Revelation, given to mankind. That is how you rightly divide the Word of Truth and understand it properly. This is one of the reasons, as Pastor Ben mentioned in the announcements, that you know we have these reading schedules that are just a tool to help you keep yourself accountable and also gives you a nice you know, daily sort of program of, of how much you have to read in order to get through the Bible in 365 days. And we don't do this just as some kind of religious hoop to jump through. We do it because it is the necessity of our lives to be balanced people, God giving to us all things pertaining to life and godliness, he says in Second Peter. And as you're going to see, the importance, the practical importance of us knowing the word of God for ourselves from cover to cover. And I'm not talking about memorizing it, but I'm talking about the more time you spend in it, the more time you read it, you just get this feel so that when something bogus comes along, you may not be able to go to chapter and verse, but you go, yeah, you know what, that's just, not, that's just not ringing right from what I know about the Bible. And that's a huge value and a benefit because God speaks to us today largely, not exclusively to be sure, but largely through the written word that he's already delivered to us. Now, why is this, I mean vitally, vitally important that we individually understand and search out, seek to, to understand God's word in a cumulative way. It is because ignorance of scripture as a whole is the main reason people and pastors and movements come up with what I'll call pseudo-doctrines, fake doctrines. Oh, well, the Bible teaches this and that and the other thing, and the Bible doesn't. In our context for this morning, it's about this idea that if you just believe strongly enough, whatever you pray for will come about. 
Popularly, that is what, this is what is often referred to as name-it-and-claim-it theology. And it's not only alive and well today, but it is gaining in force, and I would call it, it is the heresy du jour. It is the heresy of the day. Today, it is driving an expanding worldwide portion of the church, and it derives from this and from a few other such passages in the Word. While it has been historically grounded in Pentecostalism, it has spread to many other Bible-believing churches, crossing virtually all denominational barriers, albeit with some or all or much of the Pentecostal packaging toned down or excised altogether. Just to give you some touch points, possibly, of, of some big names that are out there because they're still on TV or they write tons of books and everything else. Uh, on the Pentecostal end of the spectrum are guys like Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Hagen, Kenneth Copeland called the Word Faith Movement, Danette Crawford. But then you have on the other end what I call what I would call the mainstreaming of this pseudo-doctrine. The king of the hill is none other than Joel Osteen. And of course Paula White who has been in the news very lately, is right there at the top, very well-known person, personality, author, TV personality, conference speaker and all, and she's been asked to pray at the inauguration of the incoming president, and it's causing some kind of a stink among evangelicalism. Well, I only mention that, to, again, to give you some touch points with the fact that I'm not pulling out of the air that this really is a big deal and a big issue today. In our more modern times, the normalization of this idea of belief, or you know, another another synonym for this would is the power of positive thinking or positive affirmation, as it's called sometimes. And of course, the father of positive thinking goes way back to 1930 or so, by the name of Norman Vincent Peale. And Norman Vincent Peale was not Pentecostal. He was not viewed as one of those guys who were way out there, very well educated and all. But he really popularized this, this gospel that was full of feel good and just positivity. And so I was curious, uh, Norman Vincent Peale was the pastor of the Marble College Church, which is still in existence in New York City. He was the pastor there for over 50 years. Man. So I thought, you know, just out of curiosity, I'm going to go online and I'm going to look up the church and I'm going to see what their statement of faith says. And, you know, maybe hopefully over the years things have toned down and, and they've come back to a more balanced, you know, solid view of the scriptures in this whole area. But unfortunately, I was disappointed. I don't have time to go. I would like to have gone through the closest thing I could come to from their website that I would call a statement of faith-ish, sort of. Um, but it, it was, and I'm sure, pointedly vague and ambiguous so as not to, con- uh, to put anybody off because, you know, heaven forbid that we should put people off today by speaking the truth in love. And so I went through this and, and what was interesting to me, and if I'd had time, like I said, I would read the whole thing, is that if I read it in here without couching it in these terms, and I just said, here's the church's statement of faith that uh, a friend of yours, say, is asking you, you know, should I give this church a whirl? If I read it, most of you in here, I believe, would go, oh, yeah, you know, I'd kind of give it a try. Well, I'm only going to pick out one thing for, again, because of time. Um, they talk about our core values. They talk about grace. They talk about growth. And now I'm going to read a little blurb here on individuality. 
just to give you an example again of this positivity and all this junk. Everybody quoting from their website, everyone's path of life and faith is unique and sacred. Just as God accepts us where and as we are, so as the people of God, we offer that same acceptance to others. Likewise, we find inspiration and meaning in our differences. Now, you can call me hypercritical, and I am. I am hypersensitive to, to the wolves that are out there today putting forward things supposedly as gospel truth when it's really a counterfeit by the devil. I read this, read this, and I see there being numerous fundamental problems. Because while certainly everybody is on a unique life of faith, Not everybody's path that they are on is sacred. Some are roads, and if we believe Jesus, (laughs) the road is wider than the road to salvation that leads to hell. And so we're dealing with people's eternities, and don't you know that the devil has a vested interest in being cunning and conniving? So I got through the the, uh, the statement of faith, and then I went on to just see who their uh, their current pastor was and some of their staff and, and kind of what their backgrounds are educationally because sometimes you can tell a lot about their theology and even about the church by where their pastors were educated and that sort of thing. Not necessarily, but it's often a good barometer. And they only listed five ministers. Now they have about 40 staff, but only five were were put out there as being their ministers. And the one that really caught my attention in all the wrong ways was somebody, and I don't remember her name, was called Sister So-and-So. Now first, you know, I didn't blink at that. In Baptistic churches and circles, calling someone sister or brother is very common, right? We don't do that. We just don't do it. Nothing wrong with it. In fact, it's kind of endearing because we are the body of Christ and family and all that. So fine, that was no big deal. But as I read through it, they held out Sister So-and-So as being their chief biblical scholar. So now I went, oh, And there were a couple other things that were just kind of raising little bits of red flags. So I googled her name to find out what she was all about. And the reason they call her sister wasn't that great term of endearment, like brother and sister, but it was because she is a sister. She is a nun belonging to the Ursuline sisters. Those of you with Catholic backgrounds probably know that name or that order. And here she is, their chief biblical scholar, at this so-called non-Catholic, Protestant, power of positive thinking church. That's a big red flag, to say the least. Well, at any rate, the faith movement has taken on many iterations and many manifestations over the years. And back around the mid-80s, as I was winding up my time at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, getting my MDiv to come here and be your pastor and all. Um, I was in my own exploratory phase of my Christian life. Now, I was older than a lot of students there. I'd gone to seminary in my mid-30s. And so I'd been around several theological blocks, so to speak. And I was really kind of enamored because I had been growing in my faith and many nice little neat categories that I had neatly packaged were kind of blown apart, both through experience and through my studies of the Word and then through seminary and all. And so I started exploring things along more along the charismatic Pentecostal line of things because things in Scripture that I had been taught as a young Christian were, were candidly wrong. I wasn't seeing that. 
when taken in the context of the whole scriptures. And so I, I went to uh, several conferences by Vineyard Ministries International. John Wimber was the founder at the time and, and the key teacher at the time. And he happened to be the teacher at this particular uh, conference that I went to. So I was there and, and part of the conference, they invited people to come on up, anybody that wanted to receive the gift of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, but especially the gift of speaking in tongues. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it then. You, you can still, I think, uh, derive meaning from it there. We can't go into that. Well, anyway, I somehow found myself as part of the praying team for all of this. And so I'm up there with four or five other people and a man comes up and he says that he's up there to be prayed for to receive the gift of tongues. And he identified himself as pastor so-and-so. And so for the next 20 minutes, the prayers that were there with him start praying for him, and it began out really, you know, began really nice and, and comfortable and, and uh, um, you know, normal volume and tone and everything else because there were a lot of people around praying. But after about 20 minutes, nothing was happening. And of course, when you're in that, that, that theological presupposition that you can have any and every gift of the Holy Spirit that you want simply by desiring it and believing God will give it to you and believing strong enough, nothing was happening. And all of a sudden, the prayer level kicked up in volume. And the prayers kind of changed. The prayers changed to being rather, be, not rather, berating of the pastor. Come on, they were saying, that, and the pastor's there and he's got his eyes closed and he's there and they're saying, you got to believe stronger. You just got to believe harder. You got to get rid of your doubt. Just receive it. The Lord wants to give this to you. And it just went on and the pastor has tears streaming down his face because nothing's happening and they're making him feel like it's your problem because you obviously are a doubter. And I'm backing away from this whole thing because I'm sitting there very in the, 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 the verse, the, the passage that the Lord brought to mind was from Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2 that says categorically that the Holy Spirit grants gifts of the Holy, gifts of the Spirit as He determines. It doesn't matter how much you crave something or want something or believe for something. It's up to God to disseminate his gifts as he sees fit, according to the need of the moment. And that was just, that has just been lodged in my mind as one of the classic abuse type situations of you just got to believe harder. And then it will come about. And it's all grounded in this passage in Mark and a handful of other passages that seem to kind of intimate the same thing. Well, since that day... And of course, I rejected that out of hand. I've heard from couples who have been blamed by their religious leaders and religious friends for everything from their back pain that was horrid and would never get any better to cancer, to alcoholism, to barrenness of the womb. The Lord wants you to have children. You're not getting pregnant. Well, you've got to believe, sister. And on and on the shtick goes, even to the death of an ill child. Well, if you had just believed stronger. Are you kidding me? And I'm not making this up. There are some of you in here today who came to this church as what I call refugees out of those abusive kinds of pseudo-doctrines here in the area. And yet, we go back to the text at hand. 
Jesus did say, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. That seems just so clear and so cut and dry. And yet that's not what we see played out. And so the tender, unsuspecting Christian thinks, if I'm not receiving it, obviously it's because I'm not believing strong enough. I'm not believing long enough. I'm not believing hard enough. I'm not believing patient enough. I'm not believing fervently enough or perfectly enough. And so it's fine, and it reminds me of a, a scene in the, uh, the, remember the old Wizard of Oz, right? I do believe in spooks, I do believe in spooks, I do, I do, I do believe in spooks, right? And I see these people standing here going, okay, okay, I, I believe, I believe, I believe. I, oh, it's got to be harder, nothing's happening. He's going to believe, my prayers aren't being answered, i got to believe, oh, i got to believe. And honestly, call me a little warped. Thank you. The original title to my sermon was a laxative for a constipated faith. I kid you not. When Pastor Brent's eyes rolled up into his head when I told him that, I thought, well, maybe I won't mention that. But here I did mention it. (laughs) Greg, quiet, your security. Well, all of this has the person walking away going, you know what, the problem is you're a faith slacker. But you know what? We have a very real enemy that is quick to take advantage of our ignorance of God's true truth. And he will take that ignorance and he will play it just like he played Eve way back at the beginning. It is so instructive. Let's look at it from Genesis. Now, the serpent, who of course is Satan, is the devil. Uh, The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said... See, let's throw some doubt in. Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? See how craftily he changed what was actually said. Eve, to her credit, says to the serpent, No, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, now listen carefully, God has said you shall not eat from it. Or touch it, or you will die. Eve just made a lethal mistake. Yes. What? I missed it. God said, don't eat of the fruit. He, fruit. he said, nothing about touching it, and you'll die. Why is that significant? Because again, we have this enemy who knows what God has said better than we do, better than Eve did, and he uses it for her downfall. The serpent said to the woman, Oh, 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 you will surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and then you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Apparently God has a, uh, you know, an issue with his security. Oh, somebody else is going to know what I know. I can't have that happen. 
when the woman saw, now here it is, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit. Stop! Remember what she said to the devil. I cannot eat from that or I will die, nor can I touch it or I will die. And the devil said, nah. So what happens? She goes up and she grabs the fruit She's touching the fruit. And guess what? She's alive. Nothing's happened. Well, if the devil was right on the first score, he must be right on it all. And the rest says, So Eve ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And the human race and the entire planet was forever changed for evil. Your spouse has been afflicted with a debilitating illness and you've been praying so fervently and and believing, if, if not for a healing, at least for an alleviation of symptoms and what happens, we know too well. The symptoms not only alleviate, but they get worse. And you start wondering, what's wrong with me? You're praying with a broken heart for your wayward child. You've been praying fervently, believing, knowing that the, the Scripture says it. It's God's desire that no one perishes. And so you're praying, God, I know that your desire is not that my child perishes without you. And what happens after years and years? You see them growing further away from the Lord instead of closer to the Lord. And you're going, what is wrong with me? It's got to be my faith. And in those weak moments, isn't the serpent screaming? Screaming from the NRSV, the New Revised Serpent Version, using Scripture and my ignorance to his advantage. Yeah, what's wrong with you? God's Word says He will give you the desires of your heart, which he does in Psalm 37, 4. And you say, exactly, what's wrong with me? And then the serpent fires off Scripture again. Didn't Jesus say, if you ask me anything, anything in my name, I will do it, John 14, 14. And while it isn't a scriptural passage, again, it's from Billy Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice. He writes, even the devil can cite Scripture for his purpose. What was the serpent's and the modus operandi? Even with Jesus himself, when he went to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The devil didn't try to battle wits with him. Satan comes and says to Jesus in Matthew 4, 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. It is in Psalm 91. It is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus replies, It is also written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. But Jesus, the Word incarnate, 
obviously knew the whole counsel of the word. So back to Mark 11. What did Jesus mean then? Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, not a mountain, this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he is saying is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. We know what it can't mean. And I find a real good good policy is that when I can't figure scriptures out, you know, I say to myself, well, I still don't know what this means. Then I go, okay, what do you know that it doesn't mean? And I start there. And sometimes that can be very helpful, if not completely clarifying. So why, what, what, what Jesus can't mean that if we just have enough faith, we can pray for anything and everything and it will come to pass. And how do we know that? The best example I could come up with is one that you could never fault for having a faulty faith. Who would that be? The Word incarnate. Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus himself. We go to the Garden of Gethsemane where we see Jesus doing what? He's praying. Anybody going to accuse him of not having a strong, perfect faith, having doubting, all of that that comes in? to wise? And what does he pray? Father, let this cup, meaning everything that I'm going to go through now for mankind and their redemption, all the horrors, all the torture, all the rejection, even being rejected by you on that cross, let it pass from me. The desire of Jesus' heart. Let it pass from me. But he says, not my will. Not what I want. But what you want, Father. Even more than what I want. Let that be done. And of course, isn't it a good thing that it was? If God is a rational God, and he is, and if this passage is truly inspired, and it is, then we, we have to be able to reconcile apparent inconsistencies or even contradictions by the Word of God. So Peter's noting the withered tree prompts Jesus to answer beyond the lines of what, as I said, wasn't even a question. So first of all, in the passage, what is the setting? Jesus, we were told in verse 1, many weeks ago, that they were on their way to Jerusalem, and they were on their way by way of the mount, that means a mountain, the Mount of Olives. And remember that Jesus said, whoever says to this mountain, not a mountain, but this mountain, it seems reasonable that Jesus and the gang, as they are now exiting Jerusalem after several days, are going back the same way they came which means this takes place on top of, maybe near to, it doesn't matter, but in the most poignant sense, they're standing on top of the Mount of Olives looking over at the sea, which you could see from that elevation when Jesus says what he says. If you believe without doubting, you could tell this mountain to be uprooted. Well, okay, that's a safe hedge. What human being who is in his right mind, ever born in any era, in any epoch, would have a doubtless faith to stand on top of a mountain, literally, and say, "Mm, okay, be taken up and thrown into the sea. It's not going to happen. And we say, well, that's because he doubted. 
Right. So in other words, well, nice use of that, Jesus. Nobody could do that anyway. So in other words, it can't be checked out. But that's not even the point or the purpose of it. You see, Jesus isn't being literal. He is driving home a point, as he often does, using the environment, using their surroundings, using the occurrences of what they are going through in that day at that time. When we think about why Jesus is using such hyperbole here, it's perfectly reasonable for us to see the mountain as being, again, just sort of emblematic of the whole point, a symbolic of something. Mountains aren't at issue here. As a matter of fact, prayer isn't even at issue here faith isn't even at issue here but what is at issue here more than anything is the person of God namely his sovereignty his omnipotence his omniscience the mountain is merely a symbol of anything that impedes anyone's growth and faithfulness again remember the immediate context impedes anyone's growth and faithfulness to the Lord and his purposes well Wow, that just seems like a real reach. Can you go to anything in Scripture that might undergird that that's even a possibility? Thank you for asking. Zechariah chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Zechariah has a vision from God because he is supposed to be rebuilding the temple. And the rebuilding of the temple has not been going well at any level. Not with the people, not with the finances, not with the support, all kinds of criticism and everything else. And so the word of the Lord comes through Zechariah to Zerubbabel saying, this is the word to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by your might, Zerubbabel, and not by your power, Zerubbabel, but by my spirit, Will you rebuild the temple, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you, O great mountain, will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone. That's referring to the the keystone of the temple building, meaning it is done with shouts of grace, grace to it. Now, is this what Jesus has in mind? I'm not saying that it is. I'm only showing that the use here of the hyperbole, of the metaphor, and the mountain perhaps as a symbol for various impediments to doing God's will is not unprecedented in the word. That being said, I don't think Jesus is talking even directly about mountains in our lives or even about men, or even about faith, but he is talking about God and God's limitless ability. Should he desire in his perfect ways. The wonder-working power of God is keenly in view. And where God is involved, there is nothing that he cannot accomplish with you and with me and through us when we are in right relationship with Him. This same God is desiring to use you to work through and when and where He has put you to a task, nothing should be intimidating. And what does this mean practically? Well, among many things, it means that whatever fences, whatever barriers, whatever boundaries, whatever obstructions, whatever, whatever antagonism, whatever criticism comes our way, 
if God has put you to the thing and you believe that God is the one who put it to you, your faith can be small and weak. But if God is in fact behind it, it will be done. The mountains will be removed. Why? Because of my faith? Because of your faith? No. Because I am the one who is behind it. I am the one who has set your hand to it. And because of that, I will not fail. And in my book, The Proper Pursuit of Prosperity, I talk in there and give so many real-life examples of the mountains that have been there in Barbara in my life, not the least of which was when God spoke profoundly and clearly to Barbara and I that you are going to leave Seattle and move back to Chicago to go to seminary, change a whole career from hospital administration to becoming a a pastor and all that that means. And of course, you're going to be going to what then was the most expensive seminary in the world. You have no earned income. You have no job. You don't even have money to move. But I, the Lord, have decreed it. Now do it. Okay, that's a mountain. That's several mountains. And we had to sell our house in Seattle, which was in the midst of a Boeing crisis, which means the economy was in the absolute basement. This was uh, 1983, 82, 83. Our house mortgage was 15.5%. Now, why do I say that? Because we had to sell our house, which we'd only been in for two and a half years. We had to sell it on a loan assumption, meaning somebody has to come by and say, okay, we'll buy your house for the 15.5% mortgage that's on it. Who in their right mind? And it had to sell by this date for me to make it back in time to start school. And we needed some money out of the sale just to load a truck and to travel back. And a guy came by one day. By the way, we didn't have a realtor. <laughs> we couldn't afford the, the, you know, the percentage you get to give the realtor. Were we intimidated? Oh, I'm not saying I was like, yeah, man, whoo, God's got this. Whoop, whoop, whoop. But it was as close as I've ever been to that. And on the day that we had to know in order to make the timing work out, a guy comes by and wants to buy it for, didn't even attempt a lower price. Took our house payment, or house for what we were asking for it at 15.5% interest, which gave us just enough money to load up and move back to Chicago and start the first quarter at seminary. We came back, no place to live, not knowing what we were going to do, not knowing how we were going to make ends meet from quarter to quarter. But God put us to this. He's going to have to take care of it. You know, the end of the story, if you've been around a while, I finished that in, it was basically a four-year program in two years with Barb working part-time only as a waitress. So one of us was always home with the kids. I did not work at all because I was doing overloads and going through the summer and everything else and graduated debt-free. And the math doesn't add up. That's what God's talking about. You got a mountain here, but I am with you and I'm behind this. And say to it, be taken up and thrown into the sea. It'll be done. And it will be done. Finally, let me close with, I think, a paragraph that just brings everything up so tight from John Piper. 
Piper says, Everything beneficial which fallen human beings have ever experienced was purchased at Calvary. And therefore, all answers to prayer are free gifts based on God's mercy. We do not purchase answers to prayer by anything we say or do. We only plead for the overflow of mercy already purchased by the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's good stuff. (laughs) That's good stuff. Let me have you stand. Jim Higgs, one of our elders here at Faith, is going to close our time in prayer. Let us bow and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, each one of us has some of these mountains that are standing in our way from drawing closer to you, from yielding for the first time their life to you, O God. Whoever it is, I ask that in Jesus' name, the Holy Spirit speak to them. Call them unto yourself, O God. May they ask for forgiveness of the sin in their life. May they become a follower of you today. Father, for us that have been long-term Christians, and uh, we wonder what fruit we're producing. Father, I just ask that you build a new life in their belief and faith in you. May they be used in family and friends. Father, for that person that is standing aside of me, I lift them up to you, O God. I call to mind that they may be drawn to you closer each and every day. Help us with our country, O God, to lift it up. We're in a time of real change. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.